The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Well, all right. Good morning once again. I know this is like greeting after greeting after greeting, but uh, that's all right. My name is Chris. I am uh, the lead pastor here at Fathom Church. If I if I don't know you, if you're a guest with us, welcome so much. Uh, we just want to welcome you. Welcome to uh, joining us in our first Fathom Church online kind of service. So uh, glad that you're here this morning. I'm literally standing uh, in the chapel of our church to, uh, I mean, there's nobody here. It's just me in this room. So this is going to be a, a bit of an interesting experiment today and for the next couple of weeks. I just want to like embrace the awkward together. So uh, I just wanted to say that this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. So glad that you're here. Hey, we, we have a lot to get into. So if you would, please grab your Bibles. I hope you have your own Bible. If you don't, you can open a phone or a tablet. Uh, We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to start today. So 1 Corinthians 3 is where we're at. You can can even do a Google search for 1 Corinthians 3 and you will find it. We'll be studying out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, So you can pull that up, but that's where we're going to be today. We're we're in a study today uh, that started at the beginning of this year and it'll probably go to the end of this year. And that study is in the book of first Corinthians. And today is week nine in that series. So really, we're just kind of beginning the third month in this book. And I do hope that this has been an encouragement and a challenge for you this year, that, that these, these, these passages have been difficult uh, in, in some good ways. Um, all of the sermons are available, fathomchurch.org slash sermons. And seeing as you, I mean, pretty much can't leave your house and go anywhere, you've got plenty of time to catch up. So please go back, listen to those. Uh, just take a break from Netflix every once in a while and dig into a sermon. Uh, that'd be great. Uh, now, Here's what I want you to understand. Chapters one through four is is really like one big movement in this book. And we're going to finish that first movement in a couple more weeks. But but I think that we can quickly forget this isn't like an 11-week sermon series that Paul is giving here. Rather, this is like three minutes of him talking. Like this is, these are back to back to back uh, in, in a really short amount of time. So it is good and right that we break this thing apart and chew on it and digest it and take it over the course of a, a longer period of time. But it's also good to zoom out a bit, kind of remember what's happening, remember where we are and do a bit of recap. Um, and this week presents a great opportunity for this. Uh, because commentators think that our text for today, it, it really functions somewhat as like a recap of these first three chapters in this book. So, so it feels kind of like the last eight weeks, if it feels at all like those have, have kind of been the same sermon over and over and over, kind of on repeat. The reality is it's, it kind of is the, the case. I mean, this is just one Uh, one thought that Paul is bringing about over the course of the first four chapters, and we're kind of stuck in the middle of that. So here we go today, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 18 through 20 to start. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So Paul is is recapping 
by once again saying that the wisdom of this world is folly. It's, it's foolish. Um, and he's calling out the Corinthian church for buying into that wisdom. This, this wisdom of the world, they've bought into that rather than the wisdom of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, he even just quoted two Old Testament passages to support this point. But, but, but the place I want us to park for just a few minutes is the next couple verses. So verse 21 through 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So, so here, here's what Paul is calling the Corinthian church out again um, by, by saying things like this. He's saying, you're buying into the world's wisdom. Like the wisdom of the world, when, when, you, when you say things like, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas, that's, that's worldly wisdom. And again, he's just like hammering down on the fact that when the church, when they divide, when they start creating factions and start following these little cults of personality around their favorite leader, that's them buying into the commonplace wisdom of their day. Like when they do that, they miss out on the good, true wisdom of God. And then I love how he puts it at the end there. He says, for all things are yours. All, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And and so what I think, if I'm summing this up, what I think he's saying is, is don't settle for too little. Don't settle for too little. Little. Why would you settle for the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of some leader when all things are yours in Christ? So, so this is Paul's recap in these first few verses. He says this, when you divide as a church, when you settle for worldly wisdom, when you care more about the messenger than the message itself, when you do these things, you're settling for less than you ought to. All things are yours. Goodness, all too often, we as Christians settle for too little. So it's kind of like this. I'm thinking about this the other day. Uh, I was going to take my four-year-old daughter, Harper, uh, to Target to buy her a toy. And so she had received some money from uh, her grandma for Christmas. And so she had some cash that she could spend on like a Lego or a princess dress or, or something like that. So I talked to her the morning before we were going to go to Target. And, I, and I'm like, hey, sweetie, uh, we're going to go to Target today. What do you want to spend your Christmas money on? Like, what toy do you want to buy? And I'm literally, I'm just like kind of praying that I don't have to talk her off some sort of cliff or, or ledge because she wants like the $100 life-size frozen doll. I'm just kind of talking her down in my head from that. But without wavering, she said this to my question, what do you want to buy? What, what toy do you want? She said this, I want a box. Uh, so I, I didn't quite 
frame up what that meant. But you see, we, we, my, my, my wife and I, we had, we had moved that last year. And when we had moved houses, we had bought some boxes from Home Depot and Harper had taken one of those boxes and colored onto it. And then she made it into a car and then she made it into a house. We cut a window and then she made it into a fort. And, and then when the box got too kind of broken down uh, and so covered with duct tape, holding that thing together, like it just died. Uh, then I just threw it out, recycled that thing. And, and we were done. So I, I said to her in this moment, we're going to go to, to target to buy a toy. I said, you want a box? She says, yeah, I want a box. You don't want a Lego? No, I want a box. You don't want a, a princess dress? No, I want a box. Okay. You don't even want that frozen doll, that life-size thing. No, I want a box. So I bought her a $3 box and pocketed the rest of her cash. She didn't know any better, right? But, um, but listen, the box can be fun. The box can be fun, but, but, but it pales in comparison to what could come inside the box because ultimately the box won't last. It's going to break down and we're going to have to pitch that thing out. And I think that's Paul's point here. Like, are, are, you, are you settling for something much less than you ought. All things are yours. You see, when, when Christians settle for nominal or half-hearted or, or kind of fire insurance Christianity, we don't experience the, the full life that God desires for us. See, God desires a life for you that is abundant. That's, that's full of his glory, that's full of his blessing, that's full of your joy. Like we settle for far too little. We just want the box. So that's Paul's first part of this recap. He, he, he recaps that we are settling for far too little, but then he recaps more in chapter four. So uh, Amanda already read this. Let's read this again. Chapter four, verses one through five. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, uh, be, before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So, so there's a number of things that we could get into. This is, remember, this is a recap of the, of previous weeks. And so there's a lot we could focus in on that section, but, but, uh, what I would like to kind of do with the remainder of our time this morning is talk a little bit more about judgment. Um, which I'm sure is exactly what you wanted to hear when you tuned in this morning. Yeah, I'd love to hear a great sermon on eternal damnation and judgment. Uh, well, that's what we're going to do. Okay, so stay with me. I promise there's payoff if you stay with me. But but at the end of last week, at the end of verse, uh, oh, actually this week, uh, verse five, Paul starts doing what he did last week at the end, where he starts to talk about everyone in the church, and he and he's and he's talking about judgment. And his point here, the point that I want to make is that judgment is coming. 
judgment is coming. So, so judgment is something that I don't think many modern Christians really have a good grasp of. And so what I'd like to do today is talk a little bit about kind of a biblical theology of judgment. And I'm, I just want to say I'm indebted to my friend Ryan, who helped me kind of think this through this week. I'm indebted to another pastor named John Mark Comer, who has some good stuff on this. And then I read like, like four systematic theology books this week that I referenced. So, so, so judgment, this is kind of a, a, a biblical theology of judgment. It's not going to be exhaustive. Okay. There's plenty more that we could say, um, but I hope it'll help us as followers of Christ better understand this concept because all too often, I think Christians have an unhealthy and skewed view of judgment. So let me start with this little history lesson. Um, we are every single one of us here, children of the Protestant reformation. Like, like even if you were raised Catholic in the Roman Catholic church and you weren't raised in a Protestant church, uh, your views are still heavily skewed by the Protestant Reformation, which uh, essentially rejected a very unhealthy tradition uh, in the medieval Catholic church, which is very different than the modern Catholic church. But this, this very unhealthy idea of earning one's eternal security through good works, like paying uh, indulgences, buying indulgences. And so uh, the Reformation proposed uh, kind of this idea, and, and they have kind of come, been, been uh, distilled down into what we know as the five solas uh, of the Reformation, uh, and sola means alone. So the five alones, these things that we kind of hold to and believe as Protestant Christians. And so I'm not going to get into all of them, but for, for, for today, I want to talk about three of these five solas. And, and this is, this is uh, I'll just say them, okay? We are saved through faith alone. We are saved by grace alone. And we are saved in Christ alone. We are saved through faith, by grace, in Christ alone. And, and, and so we believe this, yes and amen to this. Um, but what I think is in, in, a, in a bit of an unhealthy overcorrection around the, the, the Protestant Reformation, I think evangelicals tend to believe that if I am saved by grace, then I am exempt from judgment. Like, I think the pendulum has kind of swung and people are, are now, not, they're no longer buying their way out of judgment, but now the pendulum has swung so far to this other side where, where we, we call it cheap grace. Like, like where cheap grace and tolerance and universalism, like where God is love and God loves us and he will always love us and he will never judge us. He is love and, and love wins and God would just never, he'd never judge me. Um, and there are whole movements within evangelicalism right now where this is kind of propped up, like the message of God doesn't want to judge you. Just to, you just accept his love for you, and then you do you. That's kind of the message that's there. The problem, of course, with that is there's just way too much in the New Testament, which could clearly teach something else. Not the least of which is the passage we just read. I mean, Paul said this, the Lord will judge me. The Lord will come and bring to light things in darkness and disclose purposes of the heart. And each one will receive his commendation from God. This is Paul talking about his judgment and ours. Judgment is coming. 
So now theologians have long wrestled with how to hold these things in balance. Okay, uh, and I want to propose to you uh, the, the, maybe the best way I think we can handle these two things. And so here's the paradox that seems to be clear in the Bible. We are saved by grace and we are judged by works. We're saved by grace and judged by works. This is a paradox. Okay, a paradox, I looked it up on, uh, I don't know, OxfordDictionary.com or something. A paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement that proves to be true. And, and paradoxes, we shouldn't be uh, un, uh, afraid of these as Christians because Christianity is full of paradoxes. Question, are Christians saints or sinners? Yes, that's a paradox. Yes, we are saints and sinners. Is Jesus God or human? Yes, right? He's both. Is God three or one? Yes, again, another paradox. Are we saved by grace or judged by works? Yes, the answer to that is yes. So on one hand, Listen, we believe fully that we are accepted by God and that is based on free grace purchased by the substitutionary death of of Christ on the cross and that his acceptance of us is attained through faith, not earned through our works. So we believe that on one hand. But on the other hand, the New Testament frequently teaches that believers will be judged by God. Believers will be judged by God along with all men and that both our eternal life and our varied rewards will be according to works. That's there too. So let me just show you a little bit of this in the text. You don't need to turn there. I'll have these on the screen. Let me show you some scriptures uh, that, that talk about how we are saved by grace. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking to a prostitute. He says this in verse 48. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Romans uh, 6.23, another letter of Paul, uh, says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Ephesians 2, this is a really good summation of this grace alone thing, but it says verse 8, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So listen, we can't overstate this. You are saved by grace. Eternal life is not earned. It is a free gift of God. Faith receives eternal life freely as a gift. There's no way it can be earned through works. But then the scriptures also clearly teach that we are judged by works. 
and, and not just those who are outside the church, not just unsaved pagans or whatever. They're not the only ones who will be judged, but rather every single one of us, even Christians, will be judged by our works. Here's some scriptures to uh, help us with this one. Look again at Matthew, uh, uh, the gospel of Matthew chapter seven says this, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Jesus. Now to Paul, Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then finally, this, is, this one I think is the, the, the most comprehensive. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 says this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And listen, those are just three on each side. I could go on and on all day with texts on both sides that, 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 that I just hope that you are clearly seeing that, that you are saved by grace. Yes, that is true. And you are judged by works. It's both. Jesus is the one who saves you, but he's also the one who will judge you. He is both. And this like loving, saving kind of hippie Jesus is, is way cool with most of us, especially in our culture today. Like that Jesus, he's uber popular. Like he's got this, you know, feathered blonde mullet and, you know, he's got his baby blue eyes and he's got a lamb slung over his shoulder. Like, like that Jesus is super popular today, but, but do not neglect the biblical Jesus. Do not only consider one aspect of his character. Because yes, he is the loving, merciful savior. But he's also the judge of the living and the dead. So is it grace or is it works? Yes, it's both. Dallas Willard uh, has a brilliant quote uh, about this. It reads this, um, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to to earning. Grace and works are not in opposition, but rather they're two sides to the same coin. And we need to more fully embrace this tension. So then how does that work? Like how then does judgment actually work for believers particular? Okay. We'll talk a little bit about how judgment works for non-believers, but for us, for most of us, we are believers in Jesus. So how does judgment work for us? Well, I want to lean for the rest of our time on uh, Mark Comer's, or John Mark Comer's threefold breakdown of this. I think it was really helpful for us. Uh, so he thinks about judgment like this. Judgment for the believer has a past, has a present, and has a future aspect to it. Past, present, and future. So first, your sin, Christian, your sin was judged completely in the past. Where? On the cross, 
right? That's where it was judged. So 2,000 years ago, at that moment in time, as Jesus hung on the cross, he took on himself all the punishment for our sins, and he bore the wrath of God reserved for sinners. Romans 3, 23 through 25 is a classic passage on this that you might know. Let me read it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So so what that passage means is that the punishment has already been dealt out. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, the judgment for your sins is covered. Your sins have been pardoned because of the work of Christ in the past. Now, listen to me. If you're not a Christian, if you are not a believer or follower of Jesus, that judgment is still for you. It's still there. Okay. So I would just say this today. If you're not a Christian today is the day. Like you can repent of your sins right now where you are. You can trust in Christ, be made right with him, and you too can have all your sins covered, just justified as it were uh, in the past. But Christian, listen, if you're a Christian, your sins have been judged. You have already been made right with God. So that's the past version of your judgment. But there is a present judgment in the text as well for those who are in Christ. The Bible speaks of God currently judging us. You see, the past judgment was for our sins on the cross, and that saves us from hell. That saves us from this eternal separation from God. But the reality is this, we all still sin. And there are still consequences for our sin. And, and God still judges us as we sin. Here's a couple scriptures to show you this, okay? Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32 uh, says this. But when we are judged, that's present tense, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. That's present tense. We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So, so the text just said that, that God presently judges us by disciplining us. And to whom then does God discipline? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 6 says this, uh, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, that's God's present judgment. It comes in the form of discipline, and it's a sign that he loves us as his children. So uh, here's the illustration. I was talking to one of our elders about this this week, and, and he reminded me of the illustration of parenting. So uh, we have kids in our neighborhood, uh, my daughter included, who they just run crazy together out in the street. Um, and, and they practice what Marcy and I call street justice, right? Which is kind of like a gangland word for uh, letting the kids figure out their problems 
by themselves, like letting them work it out. It's actually a very important life skill uh, that's developed in kids when they play with other kids. And it's actually taking a great hit. You can read all kinds of articles about this, but like as we brainwash our kids with TV and video games and phones, like, like they, they, they're losing this ability. It's another sermon for another day, but, but really this is a good thing for them. So, so we let them work it out. We let them work out their own stuff. But listen, every once in a while, the street justice takes a turn for the worse. And, and, and the parents, then we have to step in and discipline. Now, here's the illustration. I, I can correct the other kids in our neighborhood, but the only child who I can really discipline is Harper, right? This isn't like a century ago where any adult could just like beat on any kid for practically any reason. Like that's just not how it works anymore. See, if I inflict pain on the kid who lives down the street, I'll go to jail. But, but sometimes I do inflict pain on my daughter. Like there are times where I'll swat her bottom for discipline. And, and listen, save me your emails, okay? Those of you who don't discipline your kids, like we know who you are. We see you at Target, okay? So, so but, but, but I do, I discipline my daughter. Why? Why? Because I love her. Because I want her to learn and to grow and to become the young woman that God created her to be. And so it is with our God. So God's judgment, it's past. It's in the cross of Christ. It's, it's present. It's in the form of discipline from a good father to his children. But then Christian, there is a future aspect to God's judgment. And we've already talked about that a bit, but, but there's this future judgment at the day of the Lord. Remember this from last week, if you were with us, um, on the day, the, the day of the Lord, on judgment day, we will be judged. And, and that day, it's not just for those who are unsaved. Okay, you got to remember this, all right? Because I think we tend to think of Judgment Day as something that's reserved for Hitler and for Stalin and for murderers and for rapists and, and you know, like bad guys. That's, what that's who will be judged on Judgment Day. And hear me, it is for them. It is. But it's also for housemakers and investment bankers and nurses and students and pastors. One theologian I read this week said this, scripture leads us to believe that the sins of believers will be revealed, though they will of course be revealed as pardoned sins. And so that's the future judgment. And the whole idea here is that all three judgments work together as one for the believer. Past judgment, all your sins, all your sins, past, present, and future, all of them that would cause you to be separated from God for eternity were once and for all judged on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God reserved for sinners and substituted himself in our place. But now that past judgment has occurred, but now in the present, there's this present judgment that as you have started to follow Jesus as Lord, he has been progressively sanctifying you, making you more and more and more like 
Jesus judging you through discipline. Like, so over the course of your life, you would become more conformed into his image. So that, so the past judgment was done. The present judgment is being done so that on the day of the Lord, this moment of future judgment, when you stand before him, all he's doing is at that point confirming in the final judgment what has already occurred. You are saved by grace and judged by works. And if that plays out, he will say, enter into my joy. He confirms what has already occurred. So one of the questions that I got after last week's sermon and which led me to preach this message today is specifically around judgment of Christians, okay? Um, and, and, and even more specifically, the idea of this reward and loss idea that we found back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to read that, that text one last time and then wrap this sermon up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15 says this, If the work that anyone has built on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So those two verses, they're referring to the final judgment, to judgment day, where every person, but specifically in this case, Christians will stand before the judge who is, remember who the judge is? Yeah, Jesus so every Christian will stand before Jesus on judgment day and what they did with their lives will be judged. And the text said that anything that survives, if it, if it has eternal value, then that person will be rewarded for it. But if nothing survived, if things got burnt up, if what you put your life into was more temporal and not eternal, then that person will suffer loss, but ultimately will be saved. Now, what does that even mean? Like, that's the question. What is the reward and loss? Like, what does it mean to suffer loss versus be rewarded if we're all just going to be saved, Christian? Well, a friend of mine shared uh, a very helpful illustration this week with me that helped me in this. So, so stick with me. This, I think, will help. He told me of his grandfather who, uh, when he was getting pretty old, uh, started, uh, had kind of a, a crisis in his life. So he, the grandfather, for his whole life had been kind of a nominal Christian. Like he could have fit into that category that we talked about at the beginning of this sermon. He, he settled for too little. Okay. So he, he kind of went to church and, and he kind of believed this stuff. And, you know, like, uh, as much, he, he was as much of a Christian as he wasn't a Buddhist. He was a cultural Christian. He was a nominal Christian, but, but the reality was it never really made any real impact on his life. And that was shown in the way that he lived. So, so he was harsh with his children. He was kind of borderline domineering with his wife. And he took no delight in his work. He just worked begrudgingly to provide. And, and it turned him into this bitter, this angry, this kind of crotchety old man. Uh, but when he was in his early 80s, he went to the doctor and, and he received some bad news. Uh, he had cancer and he didn't have long to live. And so he, like, like many in that moment, uh, 
felt something of a spiritual awakening happen in light of his impending death. And so he started at that moment to try to love his kids and his grandkids really well. And he started to love and cherish his wife at that moment. And then he started attending church weekly and he started trying to read his Bible and he tried to go deeper with Christ. Um, but, but Hebrews chapter 12 compares the Christian life um, like a long distance endurance race. Uh, so the text reads this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what my friend told me was that as, as he watched his grandfather in his final months of life, it was like watching a, a runner trying to run a marathon at a sprint, like at a sprinting pace. And, and even though those were some good months for their family, he, he realized that his grandfather experienced very real loss in realizing that he had wasted so many years of his life. I think that might be what Paul's getting into here. Like in this recap of the last few chapters, I'll sum it up like this. I think he's saying this, don't settle for too little. Don't settle for too little. Why? Because judgment is coming. So how you live today matters. How you live right now matters. So hear me, if you're not a Christian here today, my hope is, is that, that, that this would like this would be real to you, that you would realize that judgment is real. And the call to you, if you're not a believer with us today, is, is to believe, to believe in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, to begin following him today, to repent over your sins today, to pray to receive Christ right now, today, so that on judgment day, your sins would be pardoned for whatever amount of time you have left on this earth, that you would run with endurance. That's our hope and our prayer for you. But, but if you are already a Christian here today, I want you to reflect on your life. Have you settled for too little? All things are yours in Christ. Life to the full. Abundant life ever-increasing joy and peace and love. Question, have you settled for the box instead of what was inside the box? This, the call to us, church, is how you live matters. It matters. Judgment is real, and it's coming for us all, and I don't want you to experience loss on that day but rather this reward that's promised. You see, my friend's grandfather, he may have been saved, but in a very real way, he experienced loss. My hope is that would not be true of us, church. Today is the day. Today is the day. We don't know how much time any one of us has, so let's run. 
Let's, let's run the race with endurance. Let's not settle for the wisdom of this world. Let's not boast in men, but in Christ. Let's, let's run and, and know that in the end, as Paul says, each one will receive commendation from God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I'm thankful for this text. I am thankful for um, this this passage of scripture that kind of recasts, but also casts our eyes to, to the end, to judgment, but also to the good that, that, that you have provided for us, that, that in the cross we have been judged, but that also through our discipline in our lives, you are judging us so that ultimately one day at the final judgment, you will be able to give us the commendation. Lord, I do pray that if there are those who are lost, who are far from you, Lord, that today would be the day that they would bow the knee to you that today would be the day of salvation, Lord, I pray over that. But also for those who are in Christ, those who are Christians here, Lord, I do pray that we would examine our lives and ask the question, how are we running? How we live matters. And so, Father, I do ask you to convict our hearts through your spirit. Even today, as we are scattered amongst a million different places, Lord, would you today convict our hearts with your word for our good and for your glory. Lord, we love you. We bless you today in the name of Jesus. Amen.